purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Everyone thinks of preventative medicine as the best course of action, but is it possible that getting certain medical screenings when you are healthy, the same screenings your doctor may actually urge you to get, could be harmful to us? Today's guest, Alan Castles, is here today to talk about the industry of medical screening, to parse out the good tests from the bad ones, and to discuss the potential unforeseen and sometimes irrevocable consequences of getting screened prematurely. Alan Castles is a drug policy researcher at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, and most recently the author of Seeking Sickness, Medical Screening and the Misguided Hunt for Disease. If you have questions about medical screening today, you can join the conversation on HealthWatch at 503 Two three one eight one eight seven. Welcome to Health Watch, Alan Castles. Good morning, David. So, in the beginning of your book, you make a you make a, a different you you differentiate between um, the difference between screening people who actually don't have symptoms and using diagnostic tests for people who are sick. Can you tell right. us the difference? Because that's crucial to everything you argue in your book. Oh, absolutely. That, that is the crucial difference. The fact that the screening, what I'm talking about in my book, is where you've got perfectly healthy people who have no symptoms, have no signs of disease or other kind of concerns, and then you offer them a test uh, hoping that you will be able to find something early enough uh, before it goes on to hurt them. Uh, that's different than, say, a diagnostic test where you feel something unusual, a lump or something, and then you go in and your doctor starts to do a number of diagnostic uh, tests. Sometimes those are screening tests as well. But, uh, yeah, what I'm talking about is really just healthy people who are offering themselves up uh, to be screened. Well, the idea, Alan, that the that earlier is better, that if we find something before we have symptoms or signs, um, we're going to get better and we're, we have better odds of getting better, is really hard to shake for, for patients and, and people in general. Can you give us some examples of where earlier isn't better? Well, you, you know, you're, you're right. The, uh, the earlier is better is a, is a mantra that we've all come to believe. And some things, you know, uh, earlier is better. Uh, you know, a, a physician's going to want to know whether you have uh, uh, early signs of, say, pneumonia, for example. They can treat you before it goes on to, be, to develop into full-blown pneumonia. But a lot of the things that we screen for may never go on to hurt you. So you're just really um, exp potentially experiencing the downsides of the screening. So one example uh, that I refer to in the book is uh, refers to a, a common screen that's offered to men uh, 40 or 50 years old. The physicians will say, look, there's a test that I can offer you to find early signs of prostate cancer. It's called a PSA test. And it's a very simple test. Uh, it just consists of looking uh, in a blood sample to see if there's perhaps signs of this um, of, of potentially prostate cancer. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with, with doing that? Well, but the problem, of course, is that the test itself will find many, many men who have signs of what looks like prostate cancer, but they don't actually have uh, something that's going to go on to hurt them. In fact, uh, uh, prostate cancer is, uh, you know, it, it, it contributes to about 3% of, of men's, uh, the overall mortality rate for men, but about 60% of us will develop it in our lifetime. 
so you've got this huge kind of uh, reservoir of people who uh, are are never going to be hurt by uh, uh, prostate cancer, uh, but if they find it uh, with an early test, uh, then that will lead to all kinds of things, including biopsies, possibly unnecessary surgery, and all the all the downsides that come with that. Well, well, given that most people die with prostate cancer rather than from it, do do you know the statistics of how many men get their prostates removed? Um, unnecessarily for every man that's saved? Like how many men are suffering incontinence and impotence in order to right. find that one person who's, who would actually have died from the prostate cancer? Right. So the, the, the best available evidence, and you know, studying screening, by the way, uh, your, your listeners should know, uh, is not often, uh, is, is not sometimes done very well. And so uh, some of the best research on, uh, on uh, PSA screening says that you have to screen something like uh, 1,100 men uh, in order to save one life. So you say, well, okay, well, maybe that's worth it. If you screen 1,100 men, you you can save one life. But of those 1,100 men, you're going to cause about 48 or 50 of them to be treated uh, unnecessarily. And um, that treatment often consists of surgery or chemotherapy uh, and drug treatment and... um, and uh, about 60 to 70 percent of those men will be left incontinent or uh, impotent. And so these men would never have gone on to develop a lethal prostate cancer, and they've been treated, and so they have basically become harmed by the screening. And uh, there's an estimate by Gilbert Welch, who wrote the foreword to my book, who, who estimates that there's something like 2 million American men right now in the U.S. who have been... Uh, um, unnecessarily treated for prostate cancer. That's a huge burden of, of should we say, medical system-inflicted disease on the population. We're talking today with Alan Castles, the author of Seeking Sickness, Medical Screening, and the Misguided Hunt for Disease. Well, it seems like the medical establishment, after decades of promoting uh, PSA as, as one of the tools for screening for prostate cancer, has, has backed off of it as a standard of care. Um, but right now we're in a, a bit of a controversy and debate around the mammogram. I know in, in Canada they they moved back the, the recommendations from 40-year-olds 40, uh, 40 to 50-year-olds and that the United States tried to do the same thing but then suffered quite a backlash from patients um, and so backed off from changing the recommendations. Can you talk That's to right. us? Can you talk to us about the mammogram controversy and then and then the uh, upsides and downsides of getting them? For, for sure, you know the the, the um, backing away from the recommendations was really uh, the result, the way I understand, it, of, of pressure from patient groups and others who have a really strong belief in the in the power of mammography, and you you can kind of understand why. So many women uh, stand behind mammography. Maybe they have, or themselves, or their mothers, or sisters have have been through uh, a mammogram. They found something suspicious. They've gone in and had a biopsy or surgery and had it removed, and they believe that their lives have been saved by it. So you can you can understand why there are so many uh, groups and, and individuals really who are promoting um, w- women getting checked annually. However, when you start looking at the research and say, well, how many women actually benefit? We find that if you start screening women in their 40s, you're going to really enlarge the the pool of patients 
who will um, who will have had unnecessary things found, or, or should, not unnecessary, but they, they will have they will find um, uh, unusual or abnormalities in a, a larger pool of women's breasts, and that will lead to uh, unnecessary surgeries and unnecessary treatment. And uh, so the recommendations have changed from 40 to 50. And uh, it used to be that it was recommended every year, and, and some are saying it should be done every second year, every third year. What the the this is just really reflective of the medical community realizing that the more aggressively you screen, the younger uh, population of people that you screen, then the more overdiagnosis and overtreatment and unnecessary treatment you're going to create in the population. Uh, the, the numbers around breast cancer screening really are quite astonishing, and this you know really surprised me when I researched this for the book. Is that you have to screen over two thousand women every year, and so these are women in their uh, between forty and and sixty. You screen them every year for eleven years to save one life. So you say, well, what's what's wrong with doing that? Yes, certainly most of the the, the vast majority of women are not going to have their lives saved from mammography screening, but those 2,000 women, about six or 700 of them are going to experience false positives. So that would be things that look unusual on a, on a mammogram that results in biopsies, surgeries, and other kinds of treatment. So, you know, there is, a, there is an upside to uh, mammography, and there's a downside. And, you know, um, w- when I was writing this book, the, 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 pr- the publisher said, you know, you should come up with a, a recommended list of when people should be screened. And I said to myself, I can't really do that because it's a moving target. What we said five years ago about when women should be screened for breast cancer has changed. And so really, it's about informing yourself about what could go right and what could go wrong. We're, we're talking today with Alan Castles, the author of Seeking Sickness, Medical Screening, and the Misguided Hunt for Disease. Uh, let's take our first caller. Welcome to HealthWatch. You're on the air with Alan Castles. Yes, uh, why is there no interest in screening for fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, immune dysfunction? Does it have to do uh, with profit? I'll listen to you off the air. Thanks for the call. Yeah, so what you're suggesting is that we bring in a screening test for fibromyalgia. I mean, most of that kind of um, uh, illness has has symptoms. So you you don't really need to screen. What you need to do is deal with people who present themselves to their doctors with symptoms. Uh, I, I would imagine, I haven't looked into this, but I would imagine that that you taking healthy people and saying to yourself, well, they might have fibromyalgia, maybe we should screen for them, uh, screen them to determine if they might have a hidden disease is not something that's going to have a very big payoff. So that would be so. Most of the um, screening that I'm talking about are things which are symptomless. But I, I would think that fibromyalgia, you have symptoms, you have problems that you want to uh, get checked out with your physician. Well, so far, Alan, you've talked about how um, even though it seems on the surface like a logical thing to do to try to screen people younger and younger for certain things that they don't actually experience symptoms from yet, mm-hmm. um, that it's causing harm to uh, a potential um, subset of the population. But aren't there also pressures happening that don't have to do with medicine per se to to screen earlier? And when I, th- when I say that, I, I think, for instance... You know, screening someone who's eight years old for cholesterol in the hopes that maybe they can be put on a statin medication, for instance. That there's pressures yeah. from industry to to um, 
try to enlarge the population of people who might be taking their medications. Right, and 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 you know, I have tried to follow the money in 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 looking at some of those issues. That you know, the, you mentioned cholesterol screening in children. That's that's a very good example of. You've got a, uh, an early screening test for heart disease, and this is uh, measuring the level of uh, cholesterol circulating in your blood. And there's some benefit, I say some, perhaps not a lot of benefit in, in doing that kind of test in men in their 60s and 70s who have established heart disease. If you can determine that those men have uh, a previous history of heart disease and they have high cholesterol, then you might be able to alter their chances by giving them a cholesterol-lowering drug. But in terms of everyone else, and in that category, I include women, the elderly, and children, there's simply no proven benefit that screening those people for high cholesterol and then putting them on cholesterol-lowering drugs would lead to any benefit. Now, I know that that may shock some of your listeners, but you know we do have what is considered to be the biggest and most successful, when a successful, commercially successful uh, drug uh, class in really in the history of the world is a cholesterol-lowering drug. So these would be drugs like uh, Lipitor or Crestor or Zocor, those kinds of drugs. Well, the, well er, I'm sorry, go ahead, Alan. I was just going to say the urge to, ch- to check people's cholesterol, determine that a certain number of them have high cholesterol, and then trying to alter that chemically with uh, uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs has been a, a, a fantastically successful <laughs> commercial business. In terms of translating that into health effects, the, I, I would say that the vast majority of the population are not benefiting from those treatments. Well, it, it's definitely true that you know if we look at meta-analyses of statins for primary prevention, that yeah. there are just as many that show benefit as don't show benefit. But I would argue that you know screening for cholesterol, is, uh, speaking as a naturopathic physician, yeah. certainly putting in uh, diet and lifestyle uh, and weight management. Um, interventions and using that screening to as a motivator for patients, it can be quite helpful. Um, sure, did, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount that though. You know, but th- on the other hand, though, a lot of times th- that screening ends up in in simply the easy fix, which is the is the prescription, and then people don't do the other things they need to do that you suggest, which is the lifestyle and the modification of the diet and so on. So, so Alan, what would you consider to be um, some of the better screening tests that are recommended is are there one or two that stand out to you as these really have shown themselves to have stood the test of time sure you know i think probably the best example is the is the pap smear now this is a test that is done uh, for women once they've reached their age of sexual uh, maturity and uh it, it can be done in a physician's office. They can scrape some cells from the cervix, and that can be sent to a lab. And it can determine if there are unusual, um, uh, perhaps precancerous growths, uh, and that can help uh, really prevent um, cervical cancer, which is, you know, it's not one of the major cancers, but still it's, it's in the list of the top ten, certainly for uh, lethal cancers for women. And, uh, you know, when I say this is an effective uh, tool, that does not mean it, it, it needs to be used in all women at all time. I, I use one example in the book. I interviewed a physician here in British Columbia who said that he had an 82-year-old patient come into his office and ask for her annual pap smear. And he said, <laughs> my jaw hit the floor with a thud uh, in the sense that he was so surprised that this woman would still want to have a pap smear when, when she's 
really beyond the age at which uh, it's either recommended or even even sensible to do. And the the, the more I, I dug into, um, you know, the the kinds of screening that happens to people outside of the recommended age categories, there's something like forty percent of the screening that's paid for through Medicaid in the U.S. Uh, is done for people outside of the recommended age categories. So even when you've got a very effective test like the the Pap smear, it's uh, it's it's often widely used outside of the range of the people who would benefit, and possibly not used enough for the uh, for the younger women who, where there would be a, a, a benefit. So the Pap smear is one thing that that most women should consider and should look into. And and the other, I guess, is uh, is just the issues around colorectal screening. There are a number of, of, of different tests. There's some fairly good research that having a colon uh, uh, colonoscopy or um, a number of other ways to, to inspect your colon is a good idea, uh, doing it once or, or uh, uh, once in a while. Um, in terms of the recommendations around that, those uh, colon cancer screening is considered to be, uh, you know, the, the, the jury, I should say, the jury is still out on, so frequency and recommendations, and there are some problems with false positives where they will find unusual things that sometimes will not go on to ever do, uh, cause you any problem, and there are sometimes dangers with the um, with perforations and so on when they're actually doing the test. Though that's something that that uh, that uh, people should look into. I was asked by one interviewer. Uh, who said to me, you know, you've you've looked at all various types of screening. What would you uh, do for yourself? Uh, and I thought, well, that was that's an interesting question. And I, I you know, at my age, at, at 48, I said I would probably look into a colon, colon cancer screening probably within the next five years. Sure. <laughs> I left it at that. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more uh, about conflict of interest because we we mentioned earlier, you know, obviously the pharmaceutical interest industry has an interest in expanding its um, patient base. But there's also an issue, I I would think particularly with some of the more experimental tests like whole body scan or heart scans, where where physicians are leasing machines and then needing to pay back the money that they've they've borrowed in order to buy or to lease expensive equipment, that there is a profit motivation for uh, a physician to promote a test um, perhaps more than it actually is warranted to be used. Can yeah, you can you talk uh, more about that? Yeah, you know, mo- mo- most people might say, well, what's wrong with having uh, private companies, you know, uh, uh, promoting um, full body scans or, or heart scans? You know, when you when you when you look closely at that kind of screening, um, often you'll find that the evidence base in terms of what is recommended and what there is good scientific proof does not exist. So, you know, there's no good scientific evidence of people who have full body scans or people who uh, undergo um, uh, heart scans for calcium or so on in their arteries uh, will ever do any better than people who don't go, uh, undergo that kind of screening. And there is a huge profit motive. I mean, the, the, these uh, screening um, tests can cost five, six, seven hundred, maybe a thousand dollars. I had a um, a flyer that fell out of my newspaper one morning, and it was uh, it was an advertisement for Canadians to come down to uh, Port Angeles, which is just across the straits here, to come and have their full body scans. And you know, you could you could uh, 
spend five hundred dollars for a, uh, a chest scan or, or six or seven hundred dollars for or various organ scans, or you could spend a thousand dollars for the full meal deal. And th- this really sort of caught my attention because I thought, wow, here's a company that's clearly just trying to sell the benefits of the scan without any uh, good scientific evidence that, that, that it benefits people. And, you know, so the, the, the area in which the conflicts are a little bit more murky is when you're talking about uh, more proven kinds of screening, as I mentioned earlier, uh, PSA testing. Uh, recently, when the um, United States Preventative Services Task Force, this is the it's a it's an independent organization uh sponsored by the 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 US government that that looks at uh the science around screening and makes recommendations they were recently very much under attack for their recommendations around the PSA test because they've looked at the evidence closely and said look we think that uh it should not be recommended it should not routinely be recommended to otherwise healthy men and they were you know, really strongly attacked by the organizations of urologists and so on, who um, who really actually make a lot of money. Make uh, uh, you know, some of them probably make most of their money by treating, uh, testing men for prostate cancer and then treating them. Um, and including, you've got hospitals that have these robots uh, and and you know, promoting uh, their their robot as being the way to have your prostate removed when you've got prostate cancer. Uh, again, no good evidence that having your prostate removed by a robot versus a human. Um, well, and there's <laughs> also other than lack of fish. other than lack of evidence. Um, it's, it's particularly with the scans. I, um, you do mention in, in in seeking sickness that the CT scans are actually hundreds of times stronger than X-rays and and are causing a certain. Um, minority of cancers in the United States. I think you s- cited something ab- about around 1% of cancers in the U.S. and that in some European countries it's outlawed entirely for a screening of somebody who's otherwise healthy. Absolutely. They, they outlaw it because they know statistically the more you expose patients to, to radiation, uh, the more you're, you're likely going to increase their future chances of having cancer, of uh, developing cancer. That's why, you know, going on these uh, fishing expeditions in asymptomatic people uh, is, is very problematic. You know, uh, one thing you should know if you do a CT scan of your abdomen and they find something unusual, that the first thing they will probably do is order another one or another kind of test. So you, you really start down this kind of slippery slope, a cascade of, of having lots of uh, uh, screening with um uh, say CT scanners, and you know most people won't know that a CT scanner can deliver, you know, something like the equivalent of 500 chest X-rays when they do a, a, a scan of your of your abdomen. That's a fair amount of radiation to be to be exposing a person to if there's no chance that they would benefit from it. Now, that's not to say that if you don't have symptoms, or sorry, if you do have symptoms and you're going in and they're trying to find out uh, what uh, is causing those symptoms, getting a CT scan in that case might be a very good idea. So what are some of the questions that you would recommend uh, our listeners to ask when they're offered a screening test in order to parse out um, what they want to do themselves? Right. 
The, you know, the easiest question to ask is, uh, I think, what do the independent experts say? So there's a lots of people out there promoting screening, whether it's radiologists or uh, urologists promoting PSA screening and so on. But you, mu- you have to ask the people who don't have conflicts of interest. And thankfully in the U.S. you have the United States Preventative Services Task Force that gives, I think, relatively good and independent advice. What do they say about the screening? And you can find their information uh, online. Um, the, the other question you want to ask is, what is the chances that the, the, there will be something that goes wrong? And so uh, certainly with mammography or PSA screening or even with cholesterol screening, you have to ask yourself, what's the possibility that I will be classified as a patient having a potential disease and what is my likelihood of benefiting? You know, one thing that's, that's never really measured in a lot of the screening research is what are the psychological impacts of being told that you are sick or that you might be sick. And I think that uh, can really affect uh, a lot of times people's psychological well-being. So you really want to ask what, what could go wrong. Um, and the other, I, I guess, perhaps the last thing that I would, would sort of emphasize is that Screening is never an emergency procedure, so never you should never feel pressured into, oh, you have to do this and you have to do this now. You know, take your time, do some research, you read books, uh, perhaps mine or others, and, and, and try to get a take on the independent, what the independent people say about the benefits and harms of screening. Take your time to do your research, and, and, and uh, I think at the end of the day, if you decide for, uh, to go ahead with uh, getting screened, you'll feel better because you've actually done some research. And if you decide against it, uh, again, you'll feel more satisfied that that, uh, at least it's based on some level of information. And and Alan, uh, do you have any recommendations of places people can go to to figure out how to analyze health statistics? Because I know that often the, the way health statistics are framed can make something seem like an obvious choice to do. But really, when you look closer... You, you're, they can be framed in a way that's manipulating you into doing something. Yes, absolutely. You know, I spend a lot of time in my writing trying to uh, parse out uh, uh, statistics. You know, wh- wh- one good website that I would recommend people uh, take a look at, it's, uh, it's called healthnewsreview.org, and it's, uh, it's funded by the uh, Foundation for Informed Medical Decision-Making in the U.S. Very good group, and they analyze media on... Um, on health treatments, and and has, they have lots of good information about uh, how to read statistics and what's the best way to uh, uh, to take meaningful information out of out of medical research. But you're right, though you're absolutely right that a lot of the medical research that, that we get exposed to is really um, uh, it's sometimes deceptive and manipulative. <laughs> we'll find that our, that we will make decisions. Uh, based on not really understanding what the statistics are saying. So, do you have a website yourself? Uh, yeah, just my name, alancastles.com, A L A N C A S S E L S.com. And, you know, so I, my site just lists some articles that I've written on this and other subjects related to screening. Great. Well, it was a pleasure having you on HealthWatch today, Alan. And it's my pleasure as well. Thank you. So we're talking today with Alan Castles, the author of Seeking Sickness, Medical Screening, and the Misguided Hunt for Disease. If you missed part of today's program or are interested in hearing other uh, past programs archived, you'll be able to listen to this at kboo.fm.
backslash backslash health watch later today i'm dr david Naiman, your host and you've been listening to health watch stay tuned for the rest of the monday morning radio zine